have your Bible, we're going to read um, Acts 13. If you don't have a Bible, there are ones in the rows around you. Feel free to grab one. We're on page 921. Again, Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menea, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently on him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all the righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately the mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul believed, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But then they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham, and those who among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come down with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For, D for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. 
but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. My name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are continuing in the book of Acts, obviously. Uh, A fairly lengthy chapter this morning, and um, we're going to get into that. Uh, Before we do, I want to say happy Memorial Day weekend for those of you who are here and not traveling and and partying with family away. I hope you're partying and having some fun here. Uh, This is a weekend. Uh, Memorial Day is a day set aside to honor those who have given their lives um, in military service. And uh, so it's a day to honor our dead. Um, Jesus said there's no greater love than that one would lay down his life for his friends. And so I want to just pause. Uh, If you've lost a loved one uh, to war, uh, we honor you. And we thank you for your sacrifice. Uh, If you've lost a friend or a loved one to the war after the war, to the hell of PTSD, uh, we mourn with you, your loss, and um, we acknowledge your sacrifice. So to say happy Memorial Day is is a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Um, So instead, I'll just say thank you. All right, today we are digging back into the book of Acts, uh, the launch of Paul's first missionary journey. That's how it's come to be known. That wasn't what it was called at the time. Uh, In the book of Acts, we actually have three different journeys, uh, in a sense, that Paul takes that are kind of distinct. And this is the first of those journeys. And the reality is it's actually a church planting journey. I mean, that's really what's going on is is Paul is, or, or Saul and Barnabas, are setting out to plant the gospel in communities where they haven't heard the gospel, and, uh, and then allowing a community to grow out of that gospel that will become a local expression of the church. So this is fairly important. Um, you hear us talk, and by us, I mean Trailhead. I mean me and, and the other elders and the leaders of the church. You hear us talk a lot about church planting. Uh, it is one of uh, the things that's important to us right? Uh, we are a church plant. We were planted in Edwardsville um, just, just over five years ago, five and a half years ago now. Um, we've had the great privilege of, of planting two churches, having two daughter churches. Um, Corey Johnston is meeting this morning down in Collinsville. We sent them out uh, two, three years ago, uh, and, and they're, they're thriving down there. They're doing great. We just sent out this spring um, Aaron and uh, Joni uh, to start Access Church in Troy, and uh, they're in the kind of the, the pre-phase. They're in the phase where they're, they're getting moved into the community and developing a network of relationships and, and the rest of that. Um, and, uh, and so we've, we've been active, right? We've, we've, um, I've mentored um, half a dozen church planters uh, and have coached um, 
probably dozens more. So why are we so driven to see new churches planted? I mean, why isn't it good enough to, to just start Trailhead Church? Why, why, why even start Trailhead Church? You know, why, why is this important? Well, it's important to us for the same reason that it was important to the early church. God has entrusted um, the most powerful, the most valuable message ever given to mankind, to us. It's called the gospel. It's the good news of who God is and what he's done. And, and it is that news that can change lives. It is that news that will change the entire world. And, um, and so that message uh, is important. And we are called not just to receive the grace of that message, but to move in the generosity of that message to share that grace with others. So this chapter is the birth of what we would call the church planting movement. Trailhead exists in many ways because of what the Spirit of God did in, in this chapter and what He began, um, because what began here is still going on today. So our passage today, uh, chapter 13, is the first half of what we know as Paul's first missionary journey uh, or first church planting journey. And so first thing I want to do is we read a lot. There's a lot in there. So I, I want to give you an overview, okay? I want to give you kind of an overview of, of, of what is going on with this journey. We begin in Antioch. Now, Antioch is the church we've been talking about over the last several weeks um, that is really kind of the new hub, the new center of the church. It is It is a uh, a Gentile and Jewish church. Um, it is going to become the hub for um, all of the new activity. Uh, and Barnabas and Saul have been laboring in Antioch. Uh, in our last chapter, um, or last two chapters, they went down to Jerusalem. They brought them a financial gift from Antioch, the church in Antioch, because there was a famine coming. They've just returned. And, uh, and we begin in chapter 13 with the leaders in prayer. And the Spirit comes and confirms to them that they are to send out Barnabas and Saul. They are commissioned. They are commended. They are ordained, right? Whatever language you want to use. This is really kind of the first time we see the Spirit of God coming in and, and confirming on the elders, man, lay your hands on these guys and send them, right? So it's a, it's a commendation. It's an ordination, if you want to put it that way, to the ministry. They are being sent out uh, to do something unique, to start something new in regard to the mission of the gospel. So they decide to go, and they decide to take a guy named John Mark with them. Uh, this is just kind of a footnote at this point. It's really not highlighted. Um, John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Uh, last chapter, we saw Peter hanging out at Mary's house, and that Mary is the mother of John Mark. Um, in, uh, and, and so um, he, he's going to become more important as we move forward. So the first thing they do is they leave from Antioch, and they sail to Salamis. Salamis is a port city on uh, the island of Cyprus, and they land in this eastern port city. It was about a 130-mile boat trip uh, across the, the Mediterranean, and uh, they begin sharing the gospel as they go. Now, we're not given a lot of detail. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us about every conversation. Luke doesn't tell us about every encounter. Uh, we assume that these guys are simply moving and talking and talking and moving as they go, um, developing relationships. But, but Luke does zoom in and give us um, real insight into specific conversations. And, um, and so they actually walk all the way across uh, the island. It's about a 90-mile walk, uh, and they end up walking to Paphos, which is the other port city, which is on the western side of Cyprus. And there's where we really get our first glimpse into uh, kind of a detailed conversation, because they run into a Roman proconsul named Sergius Paulus. Now, Sergius Paulus would have been a leader in, in, in Rome. He had been empowered to rule over a specific area, and uh, he was an intelligent man, we're told. And so he had heard about these guys, right? They had been walking across his island, <laughs> and they had heard that these guys are talking and having conversations, and it piqued his interest. He was like, hey, I want to hear more of what you guys have to say. And so he invited them in, and as they're trying to, to, um, to share the gospel, uh, there's a guy there by the name of Bar-Jesus, also Elymas, um, who is a Jewish magician. 
which is an interesting mix. <laughs> um, as, a, as a Jewish man, he has a rich history, and the Romans would have put him in high esteem regarding spiritual things right away, because when they saw the Jews, they saw them as very devout, very religious, very spiritual people. You combine that with his devotion to, uh, to being a magician, which, again, during this period of time would have been a combination of both sleight of hand, but also demonic arts. He would have been somebody who had studied uh, incantations and, and other things of that sort. And so he would have been both uh, a bit of a charlatan, but also um, moving a bit in the demonic arts. And, and this guy keeps interrupting Saul and Barnabas as they're trying to share the gospel. And Saul eventually gets a little sick of it. And he's like, turns and looks at him. He's like, you son of the devil, um, which is a great way to open a conversation. Um, I haven't tried it yet. This passage is very inspiring to me, though, and so I am eagerly looking for an opportunity if anyone wants to give it to me. But, um, you know, he's it's very bold, and, and, it, and it was really a very strong insult, especially to a Jewish man, because to a Jewish man, they are the sons of Abraham. They are the sons of the covenant. They are, the, they are not the sons of the devil. Uh, and, and, but he calls them out for what he is, right? You're, you're hiding behind your Jewishness. You're hiding behind your religious and spiritual heritage, um, and, and you're manipulating it. You are, in fact, the son of the devil. Um, and so here's a gift, blindness, right? Um, he says, you're going to go out about blind for a little while, um, which is a little bit gracious, right? Um, it could have been worse. It could have been permanent. It could have been death, right? Um, we've seen the Spirit do some pretty crazy things up to this point. Some people would say this was actually Paul or Saul, being gracious to Elymas, and in fact, giving him the gift that had been given to himself, that, that gift of temporary blindness, that he might in some way possibly discover his own spiritual blindness through that. Um, we don't know. It, 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 we're not told anything else about him. The tone of the passage is pretty harsh. Um, uh, Saul definitely seems to call him out very directly, very powerfully, um, blinds him, uh, <laughs> which also silences him, um, because he then has to go find people to lead him around. So he is able then to, to share the gospel with Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus becomes a believer. He hears the gospel, and, and he becomes uh, a follower of Christ. And, um, and that's, uh, that's Luke highlights that, obviously, a fairly momentous conversation, kind of a big thing, right? Now, Luke points out a few other things in connection with this event. It is at this point that Saul starts going by the name Paul. Um, Saul, so Saul was named after the first king of Israel, right? This is Saul who persecuted the church. This is Saul who, who guarded the garments of the people who, who first killed a Christian, right, at the stoning of Stephen. He was actively involved in supporting that. Um, he, at this point, leaves his name Saul, which is his Jewish heritage, and embraces the name Paul, which is his Latin name. It's his Gentile name, okay? Um, and we don't know why he did it. We're not told. There's a couple of good reasons, I think. One is that he is now beginning this active ministry, this active life of sharing the gospel with Gentiles, right? His first notable convert is a, is a, a Latin or a Roman leader, right? And, and so when I say Latin, I'm not speaking of, of his racial heritage. I'm speaking of his language, right? They spoke Latin. And so he, he takes his Latin name. And, um, uh, and so as he moves into ministry to the Gentiles, he takes on his, his Gentile name uh, that he might relate to them. The other thing that's interesting is that from this point forward, we really start seeing a shift in Paul's role. Up to this point, it's been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And, and, and now we see much more Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Barnab Paul is now moving into the full leadership of his, of his giftedness. He is now starting, in, in, and this is where he's really starting to be able to, to, to take a full swing uh, with his gifts, right? Out on the mission field, out on the, on the church planting trail, and we see him actually moving into leadership. And so Paul becomes a little bit more prominent, and Barnabas becomes the follower, right? Uh, which again is a beautiful testimony to Barnabas. We don't see any tension in regard to Barnabas now shifting into a follower role as opposed to a leader role. Um, and so he becomes Paul and Barnabas, and later, even more notably, it becomes Paul and his companions. 
to the point where Paul really is the driving force, the face of this missionary movement, and uh, the people that are with him are just seen as a, a collection of people that are really helping him, coming alongside him as the Spirit of God has anointed him for this unique thing. So from there, um, after the conversion, um, we see them sail to Perga. Uh, that would have been a couple hundred mile trip um, across the Mediterranean. Then they would have gone eight miles inland to Perga. We don't hear a lot about their time here or about this journey. Uh, Luke is very summary about it, but we do learn that John Mark leaves. When they get to Perga, John Mark decides he's going to go back to Antioch. Luke just mentions it. We're not told why. We have no idea. Um, It is going to become important later, though, because it's actually going to become a source of real conflict because Paul, from this point forward, kind of decides that he can't count on John Mark. So whatever it was, Paul assumed John Mark was on this trip for the long haul. John Mark, at this point, decides he's going to head back to Antioch for whatever reason. That's going to become a source of conflict later. It's possible that he bailed because the next part of the journey was particularly dangerous and, uh, and challenging. Next, they head to Antioch of Pisidia. Now, this isn't the same Antioch they left from. <laughs> there were multiple cities named Antioch. There was a famous guy named Antiochus. They had named 16 different cities after him, all of them Antioch. So it'd be kind of like when Lauren says, hey, I'm going to be heading over to O'Fallon. I'm like, great. Wait, do you mean Illinois or Missouri? Because we have connections in both, right? And, and she's like, no, 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 I'm heading down south. I'm just going down to down to the mall, right? Um, that would have been similar. There were a lot of Antiochs, and they had to differentiate. So this was Antioch of Pisidia. And, um, and what's interesting is in verse 14, I mean, I kind of love the way Paul says this, but they went up on from Perga, and they came to Antioch of Pisidia. When you read that, it's almost like they just walked across the street, like, like you know what? Oh, it's a nice morning day. I'm going to walk across to the coffee shop across the street and have a nice cup of coffee. Um, Here's the thing. This was anything but an easy stroll. It was over 100 miles inland, and it rose over 3,500 feet above sea level. It was an incredibly arduous and difficult journey that took you through a lot of mountain passes. And, and the Romans, um, even though they were, were very strict in their rule of these areas, still could not tame, in a sense, the mountain people. These were very dangerous passes, and uh, people that, that traveled these passes were often attacked. Um, and so it was a dangerous journey, uh, and, and, it, and that's possibly, we don't know, but it's possibly why John Mark uh, decided to hit the eject button at that point. But they do make the journey. And, uh, and they end up getting to Antioch of Pisidia. And there they, uh, they met in the synagogue, which would have been the center of Jewish life. I mean, they're really far away from Jerusalem at this point, and synagogues become really important uh, to Jewish life in these communities. They would come together in the synagogue, and it's where they kept the sacred writings, right? Everybody didn't own books back then, but a community might be able to, to buy books, and they would keep them in, um, or scrolls, they would keep them in the synagogue, and they would come together for a public reading of the Word. They would come together for sermons, in a sense. They didn't call them sermons, but they, that's what would happen, is, is, is traveling uh, teachers or local teachers would then give messages. Um, these would have been people that were trained by the rabbis, these were people that had a certain level of authority to, to speak to the doctrinal uh, content, um, and they would have other activities of worship and Jewish social life. It also became really a hub. Uh, if you were a Jewish person coming into town, that's where you'd connect with the local community. That's where you'd find your identity. That's, that's where you would, you would find people to stay with, people to do commerce with, people who would give you the ins and the outs of, of how to be there. And so the first thing that Saul and, or Paul and Barnabas do is they arrive at the synagogue, and, um, and they are invited to teach, which wouldn't have been uncommon, um, especially if they knew that they were both um, trained, which they were. Uh, and so Paul did. Paul gives a sermon. It's the whole second half of our chapter. It's, in fact, the most in-depth look we have into one of Paul's sermons uh, specifically to a, a Jewish audience. Now, he acknowledges there are Gentiles present. When he says those who fear God, what he's saying there is there are Jewish people here and there are Gentiles here who are God-fearers, right? People that are drawn to uh, the Jewish way of life. And so he basically opens up um, and, and, 
we're going to get to look at how he preached to Gentiles later, because it really is different. When he's speaking to, to non-Jewish people, he changes the way he preaches. He doesn't change the message, but he changes the way he delivers the message. We call that contextualization. He looks at his context, and he delivers his message in a way that is effective for his hearers. So he's always taking into account who he's speaking to, um, what their questions are, uh, how he can answer them. Um, but he's always working from the same framework, which is the gospel. And so he is, uh, in this case, speaking to a very Jewish audience. So you have a lot of Old Testament references, and you end up with a very clear, persuasive sermon that is riddled with Old Testament references. And, and each one of those Old Testament references are, are his way of saying, look, Jesus is in your scriptures. Old Testament, you, you believe in the Torah, right? You Jews, I'm going to show you, they all speak of Jesus. And so he's like, look, that points to Jesus, and that's about Jesus, and that's clearly about Jesus. And you thought that was about David, but that's actually about Jesus, because Jesus is the true son of David, uh, the one whose throne will, will exist forever. And uh, he is the fulfillment of those promises. And um, he explains that, that the Jews in Jerusalem didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. They saw him as a threat, so they killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And if they would believe in Jesus, uh, if they don't harden their hearts, if they would believe, uh, they also could be forgiven. They could find new life in him. It's a very simple message. I mean, it's, I love this. We're given a glimpse into, in a sense, one of the first evangelistic gospel-centered messages, and it's the same message we're giving today, <laughs> that, that Jesus lived that he was the fulfillment of all the promises, that he, that, he was, that he was perfect and righteous in every way, but he was killed, um, and in that death, he became our substitute. He took our place. And then he rose again, because God looked at him and said, I will raise you. You have paid the price for sin. And because he paid the price, we find forgiveness in him. That simple message was the same message. It's been transforming the world ever since it happened, right? It was transforming the first century world. It's still transforming the world. People who find their identity now in the risen Christ, people who find their forgiveness in Christ, people who, who hear the invitation and don't harden their hearts, but, but humble themselves and see they have a need and that need is met in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Their lives are changed. And as their lives are changed, man, it's this growing circle of change. It is this increasing circle of joy. It is this, this, this ever-growing experience of people experiencing and being transformed by grace. It's really uh, a beautiful thing. Now, the end of our passage ends with everyone in the synagogue just being overwhelmed. They had never heard a sermon like this before, obviously. Uh, and so they're like, will you come back? And so the next Sabbath, they come back to teach. It says the entire city came out. Like, th this place was buzzing. Everybody was talking about it. So they all come out. It says the Jewish leadership saw the crowds, and they became jealous. And so out of jealousy, they incited the influential women and men of the community to rise up against them. Uh, and they did. And, uh, and in a sense, started putting social pressure on them. Uh, and so they ended up leaving. They shake the dust off their feet, which was a sign of judgment. Uh, basically, they're saying, I'm not even going to take the dust of this town with me. I've, I've done what I've come here to do. Um, and it was, a, it was a sign of judgment against the, the most influential, the most powerful people of the city who were, who were pushing them out. We're going to see this becomes a pattern. This right here is going to become a pattern. They're going to show up. They're going to preach the gospel. It's going to be transformative and explosive. People are going to become threatened by it, and then they're going to try to attack them and sometimes even kill them. All right, there you go. That's our overview, okay? Thanks for sticking with me. But that is essentially what we just read about in, uh, in Acts 13, right? And this is really the birth of what we call the church planting movement, right? This is the first time the Spirit of God basically came. Now, obviously, they were making disciples before this. Obviously, they were evangelizing before this, sharing their faith before this. But this is the first time we see them actually moving out into uh, new communities with the express purpose of seeing new churches started, new local churches started, right? And so it's super important for us. I think it's very insightful into who we are. I think it's really insightful into who we want to be, and so I want to take a little bit of time and just unpack some of the principles that we find in this, in this chapter that I think um, are very informative for, for us, for, for Trailhead Church. 
And the first is this, healthy churches plant churches. I just, healthy churches, they start new churches, right? This wasn't simply a, a unique event that was only supposed to take place at this time and in this place. It was, it was something that was, I believe, um, uh, kind of a model, right? Now, this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive, which means, as we keep saying in the book of Acts, it's describing historically what took place. It's not saying you need to go do this. It's saying this is what took place. But there are principles that we see at work here, right? The reality is, is, is I think Antioch is about as good of a church in the New Testament to model ourselves after as, as any church in the New Testament. Antioch is a healthy church. A lot of people have never heard of the church at Antioch because there's no letter in the New Testament written to them, right? Not like Galatians, which by the way, Galatians was Paul's first letter, um, and Antioch of Pisidia is in Galatia. His whole, the the rest of his journey is going to be really starting the Galatian church. Um, But the church at Antioch was a, a healthy church, and we see that as we simply look at the text, okay? So at the beginning of chapter 13, when you look Um, It says, now there were at the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod, uh, or excuse me, a friend or a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. All right, so what we find is there's a leadership team in Antioch that is actually uh, quite diverse. There's a, a diverse leadership team. So let me just unpack these names a little bit for you. When you see a list of names, there's often a lot going on here that that isn't apparent when you first read them. Uh, It begins with the name Barnabas. Well, that tells us that Barnabas is seen as really the leader of the Antioch church. So if you were to to say, in a sense, who's the lead pastor, if you want to use that terminology, who's the, the leader, there would have been a group of leaders or multiple people who were in leadership, but Barnabas was in many ways the one seen with, with the most experience. He would have been what we call the first among equals. He would have been seen as the one who has the vision and the experience and the calling of God to lead in this context. He's the one that went and found Saul and brought Saul to this church, right? He was, he was caring for this church and in many ways leading in this context. Along with him, you have Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, Every commentary I've looked at says the same thing. The word Niger literally means black or dark. So what we can take from this is that this is somebody from Africa. Um, In fact, it's interesting. It's paired with Lucius the Cyrene, who is, Cyrene would have been uh, from northern Africa. So we think that that there were um, black leaders Uh, from a different context. Now, how did they arrive in Antioch? They may have moved there for economic purposes. Antioch was an economic hub, right? An important trade center. They may have come to Antioch in order to to, uh, trade and and basically be um, at a a foreign office for their business, right? Um, We don't know exactly why they landed there, but they became believers there and they became leaders in the local church there. Uh, you also have Manaean, we'll call him Manny. Manny is a, a member of the court of Herod. Now, the, uh, the word a member of is, is a little bit deceptive. I don't think he necessarily meant he's a member of the court. It's, the word literally means suckled at the same breast. So he was a, a lifelong friend, right? He was raised in the same, in the same home as, as Herod the Tetrarch. He was, he was um, raised in the same, and so he would have been considered like a lifelong companion, a lifelong friend, kind of like a brother. Uh, now, that is interesting. <laughs> Herod the Tetrarch. You guys remember Herod Agrippa? We talked about him last week. Not a good guy. Not a good guy. Not the kind you want, right? And before him, we talked about Herod the Great, the one that slaughtered all the kids because he was afraid somebody was going to be born who could take his kingdom. The guy who killed his own family, killed his own son, killed his wife, killed his right. That Herod the Tetrarch is the guy that came between them. <laughs> he, he was one of the other sons of Herod the Great, uh, the uncle of Herod Agrippa. And, um, and he was just as bat crazy. I mean, he just was a lunatic and dangerous. He's the one that we, we see during Jesus's ministry. He was the one leading and, 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 and um, he came before Jesus or Jesus came before him after he got arrested. And basically Herod was like, hey, I heard you have magical powers. Are you put on a show? And Jesus was silent. He's like, you're the most boring magician I have ever seen. So he sent him back to Pilate, right? All he was doing was looking for entertainment. This guy was, was um, a hedonist and um, was crazy. And so 
Manny is a good friend of his, and he's a leader in the church. And then you got Saul, the former persecutor of the church, okay? Um, interesting group of people, right? Now, during this period of time, remember that, that people from different races, people from different cultures didn't mix, right? They didn't, they didn't value diversity, you know what I'm saying? Like, like they worked together because they had to. So in a city like Antioch, they would have shared economic goals that would have forced them in some ways into partnerships, but they would have kept their unique identities. They would have kept their unique circles of friends and, and relationships because your heritage, your ethnicity was your protection. It was your identity. They didn't mix. What we see is we have a diverse leadership team at the church of Antioch. That tells us a lot, you guys. It tells us a lot. They were healthy. You know why? Because what it means is, is um, that there was a harmony and mission that was greater than the discord of their backgrounds. They had been undone by grace. They had heard the gospel of Jesus. They became believers. And now they were with other believers in Jesus, and they had more in common with these other believers of Jesus than they had with the people that were raised in the same ethnic background, the same cultural background, spoke the same languages. They now had a commonality of mission that overruled, that, 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 that um, was more powerful than the diversity that would have driven them apart. That's a sign of health, that diversity, right? Uh, Trailhead Church, um, we seek to uh, pursue diversity, um, the challenge is obviously um, you are a cultural representative. You are moving out in a specific culture with the gospel, which means you're going to tend to appeal to certain people, and, and um, every cultural expression you choose is going to be attractive to some and less attractive to others. As we grow, we want to seek to bring in more and more cultural voices, more and more diverse voices to help us become more mature in our expression of sharing the gospel so that we can grow in this, right? So they're healthy. They reflect diversity. They're also evangelistic. Um, everybody at the Antioch church is a new convert. That's all there is, right? These aren't church transfer people, right? They weren't somebody who grew up in church and said, oh, wait, I like your style of worship better. So they started, these are all people who came from, from very different backgrounds, heard the gospel, and became believers. They were a church born out of evangelism, and they were passionate about it. The reason Barnabas wouldn't even got Saul to begin with was because they were so busy sharing the gospel with the Gentiles in the community that he needed more help. And so they were passionate about sharing the gospel with their neighbors, right? These guys weren't just dreaming about the ends of the earth. They saw themselves as the ends of the earth. They weren't just dreaming about starting new works. They were, they were passionate about moving deeply into the gospel themselves and sharing it with their neighbors. So they were evangelistic. They were more concerned with building bridges to unbelievers than building walls around their culture, right? One of the great temptations of any group, once that group starts forming, you know what ends up happening? It may form from evangelistic outreach, bridge building type activities, but pretty soon everybody has their favorite seat. Pretty soon everybody has their favorite worship leader or their favorite style of music or their favorite way of doing things. And pretty soon you hear things like, well, that's just not the trailhead way. Well, that's just not the way we do it at Trailhead. You know what what we're saying when we start doing that? We're building a wall around our culture, something that attracted us, something we love. And instead of building bridges into the community to continue to see people far from God brought near, we should become more passionate about protecting our experience. And what ends up happening is, is the mission becomes a museum a museum of all the things we thought were so wonderful when we arrived here. Once it becomes a museum, it's not long before it becomes a mausoleum, right? It becomes a house of the dead. These guys were evangelistic, right? They were building bridges. They were also dependent. I love this. These guys were busy. They were active. It was chaos. There was all this stuff going on. What do we find them doing at the beginning of chapter 13? Fasting and praying. Some people say, man, I'm just too busy to pray. No, (laughs) no. They would say, we're too busy not to pray. There's too much going on for us not to spend time in prayer. There's too many, too many people, too many questions, too many, too many needs, too many, man, we, we, it just pushed them into their dependency on God. They were a dependent church. 
And, and they gathered, the leaders gathered to pray. And fasting is a form of, of expressing dependency, isn't it? When you go without food, what you're saying is, is, in a sense, you're modeling that dependency. I need you in the same way my body needs food. I need your presence. I need your voice. I need your wisdom. I need your direction in the same way my body needs food. Should we be fasting today? Sure. Sure. There are seasons in which it is important to fast, whether it's for you personally or or for the church as a whole. We've called the church to fasting and prayer during different seasons. We're going to be calling this summer the church to a season of fasting and prayer as we get ready to move into our new building. Because a lot of times what we find is, is these seasons of fasting and prayer preceded turbulent times. And in the turbulence, God does beautiful things. In the, in the change and in the opportunity and the chaos. So it's important because because fasting can be an expression. It's not something we do to impress people. It's not something we do to abuse ourselves. It's something we do to push ourselves into dependency, to to push us to a place where we're listening in a new way and and hearing in sensitive in ways that that we're not when we're satiated, when we're full, when when we're content, right? It creates a restlessness. Anybody in here ever fast? After fasting a period of time, did you feel more spiritual or less? I know for me, it makes me worse. Man, I get grumpy. You know, I get hangry. I get, I get short-tempered. My, t- my, my energy starts dipping, right? <laughs> and you're like, well, why am I even doing this? It makes me less spiritual. Why am I doing this if it makes me more irritable? That's why. Because in those moments, you're actually coming to grips with who you really are. In those moments, you're, you're, you're basically taking off the, the covering of your comfort and looking at your heart and inviting God in in new ways. So you're creating space for the movement of the Spirit. You're, you're creating space for repentance. You're creating space to listen and hear in ways that you haven't. Before, they were a dependent church. With all the growth and sudden attention, they were dependent on prayer and fasting. They were also a generous church. Um, Barnabas, their leader, was a generous leader, right? He was wired for generosity. We know that because the name Barnabas literally means son of encouragement, right? He was, his name was Joseph. The apostles renamed him Barnabas because he was a generous guy. That, in, that infiltrated the culture of the church. How do I know that? What did the church do when God said, send out Barnabas and Saul? The church said, okay, what local church is eager to give away their primary leaders? What organization is eager to say, yeah, we're going to give up our best. We're going to give up our strongest leaders. We're going to give up, you know, you're like, oh yeah, there's going to be people there that are angling for, for new positions. And for, that's not what's going on. This isn't somebody in the background saying, okay, yeah, you move on because then it opens up a door for me to have more influence. These are people saying, we love Barnabas. He's our primary leader. And we love Saul because he's been a faithful worker and servant in this church. But God's calling them to leave, which means it is for their good and ours. They were generous. They weren't thinking about how they could keep their influence. They were thinking about how they could stay on mission. They weren't thinking about how they can make their name great, their church bigger, their pews more full. They were thinking about how they could actually work with the Spirit of God with the mission of the gospel, which gave them a spirit of generosity to send out their best. And they were patient. They were eager to be on mission, but not so eager that they were getting ahead of the Spirit. All right, I just want to hit this. This is a challenge for us. As Western churches, we are numbers driven. We love bigger, we love faster, don't we? The big churches are the ones that tend to get all the attention, the ones that have the greatest seating capacity or are growing the fastest. Every year, they publish a list of the fastest growing churches in America. Because they're the movers and shakers. They're the ones we need to pay attention to. There is in our culture a subtle idolatry of growth. We think we're better if we're bigger. We think we're better if we're faster. We think we're better if we're younger than anyone who's ever done it before. We're doing it in a way that's never been done before. We have this idolatry of the hero leader. And I think it actually undercuts the genuine movement and work of the Spirit. It's an obsession. So there's a couple important notes that I think are good here. Um, Saul, 
Saul, who obviously was going to become the Apostle Paul, one of the most important and influential leaders in the early church and, in fact, in the entire world, not only through his missionary church planting activity, but through the letters he wrote. Paul waited over a decade in obscurity before the Spirit called him out to come work at Antioch. And then when he came and worked at Antioch, he wasn't the primary leader. It was When you look at the list of leaders that gathered to pray, where's Saul on the list? He's last, because his role in Antioch wasn't to be the primary leader. His, his role in Antioch wasn't to be this definitive or this defining or this a dynamic leader. His role there was to simply serve. Okay, listen, if you're going to lead, you are not safe with the authority of the power of leadership until you learn how to follow. If you're a young guy and you've been lit up by the passion for church planting, like, I want to be a church planter. Hmm. I'm going to warn you. That's really dangerous. Your passion shouldn't be to be a church planter. Your passion should be to be a follower of Jesus. In whatever way God calls you to follow. Every church planter I know who was worth anything planted a church purely because they felt like it was their only choice. God led them to that place, and it was an act of obedience. And they would have been just as content to serve in another capacity. If you're driven to be a leader in the church because you think that's the path, subtly, maybe you're not even admitting it to yourself, but you really know it's behind the scenes. If it's really your way to become important, your way to deal with your your daddy wounds, your way to, to kind of bolster your ego, you're dangerous to the church and to yourself. And the Western church, sadly, uh, has an idolatry that feeds that and often sets people up to fail. I'm going to share a little bit of my story, not to lift myself up, but because uh, it's, I think it's informative. I call myself the accidental pastor. Um, I heard somebody refer to themselves that way, and I'm like, that's me. <laughs> that's me. I am the accidental pastor. I spent 17 years in education as a teacher and a principal. My life path was not to become a leader in the local church. When I became a believer at 17, my life path, the one thing I knew is that I just wanted to follow Jesus. I just wanted to be a disciple. I wanted to be, so I learned what it meant to, to just follow Jesus, and I learned what it meant to be a good husband, and I learned what it meant to be a good father, and I learned what it meant to, to learn how to confess my weaknesses and not hide behind my strengths, and, and I'm still learning those things, but it was a path that, that, that ultimately God used that I might eventually plant a church, but it wasn't my plan for God. It was God's plan for me. When I was 17, someone told me once, the best investment you could make is in good books. And so I got a night job. My college was paid for. I didn't need the money, but I got a night job, and, uh, and I worked nights, and I saved up, and I bought the Tyndale Commentary Series on the New Testament. It was hundreds of dollars, right? Um, I, my best advice to young guys, stop buying video games. Start buying books, right? Read, study, be serious about the Word. Not because it is your pathway to do something great for God, but because it's your pathway to come to know and love the great God who has done so much for you. Let the grace of God undo your heart of pride and personal ambition so that you can become gripped by a holy discontent, the kind of discontent that drives you to serve, that drives you to be countercultural in beautiful ways to labor behind the scenes for years in ways nobody will see or ever acknowledge. The courage not to live up to your potential. The courage not to be great because you're doing exactly what God has called you to do in that moment. And you are content and joyful to simply be faithful and to follow. Let God lead you. They were a healthy church. They were patient. Paul waited, and when God moved, he followed. And it was the perfect time. It was the perfect time. All right, two other points that I want to hit very quickly from the rest of the chapter. The first is this, church planting is an act of spiritual warfare. 
we see Paul and Saul, or Paul and Barnabas, immediately hitting conflict. Right on on the island of, of Cyprus at Paphos, they 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 ran into um, Bar Jesus, uh, Elamas, the the magician. Um, that was attack from the outside, and then we see as they continue moving, continued attack. Um, this is going to become the pattern. As we move out on mission, we need to expect resistance. When you share the love of Jesus, you're thinking, well, I'm just doing this, this awesome thing. Yeah, you are. And there are forces of darkness that hate it. Because we live in hostile territory. We're still in a very dark world, and we're called to be beacons of light, which means as we share the gospel of grace, we are, in a sense, moving out on the front lines of spiritual war. And there will be resistance. There will be those that attack it. Sometimes it'll be from the outside. Sometimes it'll be from people that are absolutely unbelievers that hate the gospel. Most of the time, it'll be from the inside. It'll be from religious people. I don't know why. Well, maybe I do. I want to unpack all that. But you find that pattern over and over again. The primary resistance to the spread of the gospel didn't come from the Gentiles. It came from the Jews. It came from the highly religious people who had defined what it meant to follow God and hated grace. Be prepared for resistance. And the third is, the last thing is this, church planting is gospel planting. I tell my guys all the time, you don't plant a church by starting an event. That's a big model in the West. You, you get this team together, you pick a place, you rent it, you buy a bunch of seats, you get a great audio-visual setup, um, you send out thousands, hundreds of thousands of mailers necessary, and you try to launch with, with four to six to eight hundred people, right? You launch an event because when you have a critical mass, which a lot of people consider 400 people, growing things grow, big things get bigger. Those are the things that are, that are true in business and they're, and they're often true in, in churches, Uh, The problem is bigger is not better. Unhealthy things grow too, right? Church planting is not about opening an event or starting a service. It's about planting the gospel. It's about coming with this incredible message of the grace of God, sharing it with people and seeing their lives transformed by it. And as you plant the gospel, you will see a community grow, a people that are being transformed by that message. And that community is called the church. Because the church isn't a place. It's not a building. It's not where all the seats are set up. The church of the people. Gathered around the name of Christ, being undone by the grace of God, being remade by the redemptive work of the Spirit. Plant the gospel and the community will grow. All right, that's what I got. Uh, I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen. Ask you guys to pray. Uh, create some, spirit, some space for the Spirit of God uh, to do what He does, which is beautiful. Uh, So let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. We'll share communion together in a moment. Father, we thank you that um, you have entrusted to us this incredible message of grace. Now, we thank you that we even have it, (laughs) that you would love us enough to send Jesus to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died, to rise again so we could be forgiven. And then you give us not just the gift of grace, but the message of grace that we might share it with others. Lord, light us up with passion. Let us see that, that the day is already passing, the hour has already come, that there is urgency. That it's not long. Our window of opportunity, we are like the grass that comes and is gone tomorrow, like the flower that blooms and then fades. We get so consumed with the details of our lives, so distracted with the minor things that seem so important. Lord, help us to live our lives and and enjoy the gift of life to your glory, but in the midst of it, not lose the urgency of this mission you have entrusted to us to share the gospel of grace with people that are far from you, that will die without you, that so desperately need to hear that there is a God who loves them and has sent Jesus to save them. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion together in a moment.